Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns-Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. My life is a spike with pain and music is my aeroplane. It's my aeroplane. Somber, sweet and sour, Jane, and music is my aeroplane. It's my aeroplane. Hello, hello. Oh my gosh, today's episode is so good. We got a chance to talk to creative and marketing mind, Angelo Bacche. Angelo has an incredible streetwear brand called Awake New York and also runs a creative agency and is just one of those overall creatives, for lack of a better word. Has his hand in so many incredible things, a lot of which you're probably familiar with, but you don't know that he's behind. Today on the episode, he shares bits and pieces of how he started, some of the hurdles he's had to overcome, especially as a first-generation immigrant growing up in New York City, and how his sobriety has helped him find new ways to process his experiences and go deeper in himself. I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Angelo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Julie and Mel. I was like, what about me? <laughs> no, I, I knew you were going to say something. That's why I had. You know, I'm always going to say something. <laughs> well, what came up in meditation today, I'm like, who dropped out last minute that I got this call, this text message? <laughs> who did I replace? Nobody. Do you know, actually, Angelo, we were talking about wanting to have a conversation with you. And our first season, and it was such a crazy year. Okay. So we're very thankful that you're with us. You're kind of a fulfillment of a conversation we were so longing to have. You're not a replacement. Mm-hmm. I'll accept that. <laughs> I'll accept that for now. <laughs> so, Ange, the entire theme of this next year for us has been the quest for world peace. What is exciting about the theme, we were thinking that if we didn't start to introduce it as a theme, as a focal point, people would always keep it in the hands of the higher-ups instead of realizing it's a grassroots effort. And you're so about community building and grassroots efforts that we were really hoping a conversation um, would unfold where people could see, wow, we have to make the focus. It doesn't matter what you're doing, it matters where your focus is. And so, you know, I was wondering about, you do so many things. You're not just like one thing. You're a jack of all trades. Okay. And I love that about you. And I, I guess you say, like on Instagram, it says you're a life coach. Yes, I am. Is that because you're under one roof guy? Like you, you handle whatever the problem is? Well, no, at at first I was being sarcastic when I wrote that (laughs) and a bit facetious. And then little by little, I feel like I've become somewhat of like a a downtown New York mentor slash therapist, especially when I first opened up my office after leaving my last job. I had a couch that I used to take my visitors' portraits on. You know, I used to call it office visits. Like those office visits less and less became about work. It became more about just check-ins 
and I didn't realize what was developing on these kind these one-on-one sessions when people would come by by my office. And also, I really do care when I ask like, "How you doing?" Like, Julie, how you doing? Mel, how you doing? You know, like it's actually someone that I just started dating. Newsflash, Mel. I have a girlfriend. What? Congratulations. Thank you. And she said the other day, like, I don't know when to talk or be quiet with you because you're always quiet. My response was because I'm always listening, you know, and and listening is an art. You know, I don't think a lot of people can listen, you know, because, you know, just to kind of go back to the theme of peace, you know, I think it's really, it's difficult. I'll speak for myself. It's really difficult to find inner peace, right? That's where the peace starts. If we're going to start from anywhere, you know, like ground zero when defining peace, like I have to have peace of mind, peace of spirit. So, you know, psychological, physical, and mental peace in order to be able to put that in, out into the world. And I, I feel like that was kind of like my, my first line to practice that when people will come and visit me at the office. So and then that was like, I guess I'm like life coaching. I don't know what life coaching is, but you know, the, the little that I, I had at that time, five years ago, I was more than happy to like literally just give it away, you know, kids, you know, and then the people that would come would just be, it got, it was all ages, right? All ages, all ranges, all sexes and color. So, you know, it was always interesting to sit and listen to everyone's story because, you know, the great thing about recovery for me is that I have multiple platforms to discuss my feelings. I have a therapist, I have a sponsor, I have a great network of sober men that I could talk to that have more time than me, that have less time than me. I have meetings that I could go to more than once once a day. You know, so I have a, a community, right? That's that's where I started really learning what community meant and the positives of being an active participant in my community. It made it kind of a natural transition to start building these relationships with my, you know, with my creative and work community here in New York City. So yeah, one day I was like, I'm just going to, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a designer. I don't feel like I'm a marketing guy. You know, like the the thing that I feel like I excel the most at is, you know, just just listening to people and and trying to be of service. So that's where the the life coach title came from. But it's more than that. I feel like you're, I mean, I appreciate that process, but I feel like you're a real creative thinker. And I feel like when, when you have enough resource to be able to process all your feelings and emotions and all the things that you're going through and that your community is going through, through all these different avenues, like meditation, you said you meditated this morning and through your meetings, then maybe that sets you up to be free to really think of the ideas that you have of like what role you can play in that situation. Exactly. That's what's so incredible. I love your sharing about your personal process and how about a world peace starts, you know, with inner peace. But I also think that it's remarkable that when you have that, how much can open up in your awareness, not just about yourself, but about the people who come to you in life. Right. And and I think the other part, the other piece of the listening piece is also learning how to be selfless. And that has taken me a long time to learn how to be selfless. The industry that Mel and I are in is the complete opposite of selflessness, right? It's it's all about us, and I'll speak for myself. It's all about me. It's all about my company or the company that I work for, and how can we win today, and how can we make more money, and how can we just continue to conquer new territories and lands, and you know, just get the best deals. So there, you know, it's really, you know, the only self that I'm practicing is you know, selfishness, self reliance, 
you know, self-centeredness, you know, which all goes back to the ego, right? Where like, I have to be the biggest voice and the biggest personality in the room and, you know, not the harp on recovery, but, you know, th- you know, it has been through recovery. I've learned how to be selfless and, you know, like I appreciate the feedback that Mel gives me and telling me that it's more than that. And I do believe it because, you know, without, without this piece, right, without the recovery piece, I'm not allowed, I'm, it doesn't allow me to be the best version of me that I can be. Right. Because when I met Mel, she knows me. The interesting thing is that Mel knows me before and after Mel saw me when I was out there, just kind of just running amok in the streets. Right. And then kind of also experiencing this person that I am today and seeing the transformation of being able to put in that work. And, and I'll tell you the one thing, you know, I just had an interesting conversation with my sponsee. What people don't realize that, you know, it, working on yourself is not easy. And the work itself doesn't ever really stop, right? I don't, I don't think I'll, I'll ever come a time for me where I'm like, you know what? I figured it out. I'm pure. Never. You know, for someone like me who's a perfectionist, right? And, and super critical of myself, you know, that can feel defeating sometimes. But for the most part, most days, it's not. It's like, you know what? Because every time I put in, you know, 10%, I receive back, you know, 200%. Sometimes it's just really minimal effort and you get so much maximum gain like the like just to talk about business, like the like the ROI that I get on meditation, like it's I can't quantify it. You know, like but like my 15 minutes that I that I meditated this morning, actually with my girlfriend, she was on the other line. It's just like I can't put a dollar value because I feel that that much closer to her, right? I feel grounded. You know, I get to be present in this conversation here with, with both of y'all with my spot and not tell my sponsor to shut up and leave me alone because you know after a while it could get tiring it's exhausting <laughs> to talk to someone about themselves for for you know 30 40 minutes they're really tapping into you know like that patience and love and empathy and compassion you know i don't know if any of that makes sense but it makes so much sense and I, in fact i relate to it because it's not that you're listening to somebody i mean it's wonderful that you know you offer that service and have that quality. But I think what is key is that what are you listening to when you listen to a person talk about themselves? You're actually listening to move things aside so that you see the true identity of the person. And that's the art of what you do. And that's my entire job. My entire job is to listen to whatever brings people to me and not just listen to their symptoms, but allow their symptoms to be keys. And those keys lead me to their true design and noble purpose, and I get excited every day. That's why I have to, like you, pray and meditate every morning for a long time, because a lot happens in 24 hours. You know, the practice can blind you if you don't allow yourself to finally emerge. And I have to be that clear every single day with every single person, whether they have one symptom or 50 symptoms. And so I love what you're saying. I think it, what if everyone made a commitment to practicing the art of listening? I mean, that could be one of those pathways to world peace. Mm-hmm. I just have to say after hearing that, that I think after you start doing this kind of work, like I remember when I first started meditating or I first became aware of myself in any way, 
And I was like, okay, I did it. And then realizing that that's not how it works. Like it's a daily thing. <laughs> and then I kind of freaked out, like, how do I incorporate this every single day? What do you mean I have to do this every day? Um, but it's really true. So much happens in 24 hours that you have to clean through, like you have to filter through a whole day of stuff. You just don't know what's what's going to pop up. Or So it's interesting. You never know who's going to come sit on your couch next. And you have to be ready for it. We all need a sponsor. We all need to stay on it. We, we need to be sober with being what we are. And we don't have a frame of reference yet. That's fascinating. What is it that you look for You know, when you're talking about this? What do you look for when a person's on that couch? What are you listening for, Angelo? I just try to hear the story. You know, I do my best to listen to the whole story and not so much like, am I listening for conflict? Am I listening for joy? Am I listening, you know, am, am I trying to pinpoint pain? You know, I just try to listen to the, to the whole kind of spiel and then let it settle. And then I have to listen to my inner voice because sometimes you have a feeling that people don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, like sometimes people just want to oof, just get it out and that's okay. I don't think everyone needs to hear what I have to say or my two cents on what I think you should be doing with your life, you know, because sometimes people just ask, like, what do you think now? What do you think? Julie? what should I do about this? And if I really listen to it with intention, I'm like, well, okay, well, you said that, you know, this job, you know, you feel like you've hit your ceiling and you're not growing anymore. So like, you know, what interests you, you know, like, what are your passions? You know, if you don't want to be doing job A, then what is it really that you think you'd be happy with, right? Okay, so and then how do we go about, you know, making the transition from job A to this new career? You know, so that, that you know, I'm, I'm not so much like listening for one specific thing, but I'm really just trying to take it all in to really make a proper assessment if, if I'm needed or not, you know, and if I can really help or be able to point you in the right direction. Like, you know what, like I know Mel just went into this new venture, you know, maybe you should talk to my friend, you know, Melody Asani, you know, like, do you know who she is? Are you aware? Or, you know what? I really know this a person that that does, the, you know, like these kind of like annual, like taken readings. You know, her name is Julie Walker. Like, you should really have a conversation with her. And I think she'd be able to kind of, you know, life, like, really for real life coach you and help you out. And to kind of go back to, to you know, I wanted to say something to the last question conversation we're having about the work, you know, whatever year, and specifically, I, I, want, I want to put the emphasis on, POC people of color approaching like this self-help. Unfortunately, what I've experienced with my friends, it, it comes later in life, right? So it's it's not, you know, like our, you know, like our white peers I've noticed have accessibility to psychiatrists and therapists at a very early age. So with us, it's happening late twenties, early thirties, late thirties, like myself. And there isn't really this understanding of like, you can't at least, and I'll speak about myself. I got sober at 36. I can't undo 36 years of what's happened to me in my life in a year or two or three or now seven years that I've been in recovery. And that's kind of like the, the, that's where I'm able to kind of tap in into that compassionate empathy for myself and really, and really be able to look back. All right. What did year one look like? What did year four look like for me? And really understand that, you know, incrementally I have been getting better. I call it like, you know, what I, I call recovery, like an endless game of whack-a-mole, you know, like, uh, you know, when you go to the state fairs and, you hit that that one mole and the other one pops up and hit that one, the other one pops up. 
And it's very much that. Like I came here and I whacked down alcohol, I whacked down drugs. And then you know what? Like women, sex, love, food, sugar, money, you know, family, all this other stuff just, and you're just constantly like doing this. Like what motivates you to keep playing that game every day? Because I stopped seeing it as a game. It's not a game to me anymore, you know, and, and it's, it's um, really making peace with all those little moles that keep popping up and kind of like healing the relationship that I have with each mole instead of trying to hit each mole. It's like, you know what, why do you keep popping up? You know, like, why do you, why do you keep popping up? You know, and, and let's, let's get to the bottom of this, you know, cause then so, the other ones stop, you know, like the, the booze and the drugs stop popping up. Like we're at peace, you know, but there's, there's a few when you're able to achieve that peace, whatever, whatever that thing is, you know, that I'm struggling with. Right. I already know what the outcome is going to be, you know? So there isn't this, like, I don't know if it's worth me really addressing my relationship with women or my relationship to love or my relationship to sex. Like, I don't know what that's going to lead to. I already know. I know what the outcome is going to be because I already, I already did that. I did that work with the alcohol and drugs. So that's really what pursues me. Now, if I decide not to, is because I don't want to, you know, and I want to kind of just be in that self-will and say, you know, just get it, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay on this kind of like hamster wheel with, the, with this relationship, with this thing. That's remarkable. I just wanted to say what's remarkable about you and such a lovely followable blueprint is that you have the awareness to ask those questions. And I, I think why sometimes like somebody ends up on your couch and they share their story, but they're not ready to hear your input. They haven't asked themselves the questions yet. You know, all they know is they're in pain or uncomfortable or something's not working. And so I, I think we have to get familiar, not so uncomfortable with asking ourselves and each other questions. Like, why is this happening? Why am I feeling uncomfortable? Why am I uncomfortable with you? Why am I uncomfortable in myself when I'm in these situations? Then I think we can be a lot more receptive, you know. So I admire that about you. How do you have a sense when something's going to work in your creative input? When I'm advising someone or with myself? <laughs> both. I, yeah, both. <laughs> like, what is your go-to knowing? How do you know? Like, do you get a visceral response? Man, it's something that I struggle with every day. You know, I, I question myself every day. I think it's much more easier giving the advice than taking your own advice, is what I'll say. I think it's much more easier for me to listen to Mel about her work, right? And give her my feedback as opposed to do the same for myself. But, uh, you know, because something I've, I've struggled with is really believing in myself. You know, I, I think it's really easy for you to see the good in me. But for me to see the good in myself, it's not so easy. And, you know, I got to get past all that noise and clutter of self and doubting myself and, you know, just, just telling the voices in my head to shut up, you know, like, I got this, like, I got this, it's going to be dope. When have we done anything whack? It's going to be good, you know, and you know what, and if it's not well received, oh, well, we'll just do, we'll just do something else. It's fine. What's helped me specifically were projects and, and no, can identify with this, you know, because we, you know, we collaborate a lot, a lot in our field, right? Or we have this kind of moment, like this bottleneck moment where we have to present our new collection. And 
if I really believe that I put 150% into the design, into the production, into the marketing, into the photos, the website, there's nothing left for me to do. There's absolutely nothing left for me to do. If I really can sit honestly and look at you in the face, Julie, and tell you like, for this last collection, for the last thing that I did with Lacoste, I did, I put in 150%. There's, there's literally nothing left for me to do. Like now if somebody decides to buy it or not, I, it's out of my control. And that's, that's taken me a really long time to get used to and to, to really have faith, right? To have faith, it's, it's going to work out. It's going to be fine. Like th- none of this was given to me, right? Same thing with Mel. Nothing's been given to us in our industry. Like we've had to fight. The whole, for me, you know, my whole, my whole career has been a fight and really having to fight for my ideas, fight for ownership, fight for my creativity, fight for my business. You know, it's never been easy and it's, it's worked out. It's been fine. I don't think that's easy. I think that's hard because you're blazing trail. You're kind of going against the status quo and saying that this is what I think. This is what I believe. There's no reference point for it, but I'm going to do it anyway because it feels good to me. It feels right. And that's really difficult. Yeah. It's, it's also difficult to accept what Mel said is my reality. You know, when, you, when you're trailblazing and you're the first, the reality is that I might not receive the accolades that I think I deserve in this lifetime. And that's okay. And it's really about that next generation. That's why I have that couch, right? It's really to pay it forward and to open up the doors. And ideally the next kid coming through those doors is going to have such a hard time. And that's what I've always, you know, like specifically the young creators, I'm like, look, I'm in this position not to gatekeep or to hold it for myself, but really to usher y'all in. You know, that's the whole point because that's not that's not the way it was done for me. It was it was the opposite. It was the opposite. And it really angered me and it still angers me when I think about it. You know, but everything happens for a reason. You know, maybe if it was a little easier for me when I was younger, I wouldn't be in, I wouldn't be here right now. You know, I, I would have just settled for a regular corporate job and, you know, get the 401k and, you know, wrap it up. But like I don't know, that that struggle, you know what they say, you know, it's a beautiful struggle. Like that's what I think my life has been. It's a it's a beautiful struggle. And how did you get started in this in this industry or down this path? I always wanted to work in a clothing store. I was 18 years old and I got my first job at this store called Canal Jean Company. And the rest is history. I just I love working in the store. See, it's funny how 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 we use the word like diversity now. Like that like diversity was just normal in New York City, specifically in retail. Like your manager was like some gay Puerto Rican dude that lived in Bushwick, you know, like there was like some trans person that worked the makeup counter, you know, like it was just, it was just normal, you know, like, and somewhere not to go off on a tangent somewhere that didn't, you know, like this kind of like the landscape of New York city, downtown retail got really just homogenized and all those, like all these characters kind of lost their homes in the sense of like, like these places to work and like people forgot, you know, what, what it was like to work in these environments. And I always felt comfortable in those environments. You know, I, w- I was talking to my friend the other morning about that, you know, like how it just never fazed me, like as a kid, gender or sexuality or, or race or religion, just like, whatever, man, you know, like, do you like the party? I like the party. Like, what's up? Like, let's hang out, you know, like, <laughs> you know, so that, you know, and truthfully, you know, like I wanted to be a photographer, you know, I, I do take pictures today, but retail always allowed me to have a little bit of money in my pocket and, you know, have the internship at a magazine or photo assist or photo edit, or, you know, just kind of have this artistic outlet. I don't know. I want to say it chose, like I chose it, Mel, but it chose me because I haven't been able to get away from it. 
20 plus years working in this industry and, and everything else. Like I said, it's like some of it is serendipitous and some of it is just hard work. How did you end up at Supreme? Well, I, I worked at Stussy first in the year 2000. Not to date myself. <laughs> We're old, Angela. Yeah, I'm old. That staple I was working with at the Fader magazine and I really needed a job desperately that paid. And I had, you know, a few years of retail experience. So he was like, hey, James, who I didn't know was James Jubb. He was like, James needs extra help as the Stussy store. You should go down and meet him. And I went to meet James at the old Stussy store. There was no proper interview. He didn't look at my resume. He just looked at my outfit. And he was like, I'll call you. <laughs> and he did. He called me that night and he was like, be in front of the, the, the new location at nine in the morning. Don't be late. I left three years after working at Stussy to work at this men's store called Nome de Guerre. And that's where I kind of like, I was able to build kind of like my, like my resume and learn like what it was to like buy for a store, you know, how to help build a brand, um, how to build a community around the store, essentially. I got a phone call from James and he was like, whatever you're doing at Nome de Guerre, I want you to come do that at Supreme. And it was, there was a long vetting process. And then I got the gig. There was no job title. There was no job description. There was just, it was very abstract and vague and open. And if anybody know who has worked with Supreme, that's kind of basically it, how all the gigs kind of start. And you, it's really sink or swim. It's on you to kind of formulate what you're going to take ownership of and, and excel and yeah i was there for 10 years you know eventually i walked away as the brand director of the brand and very proud of the work that i did there it also inspired you know it inspired me to start my own my own brand awake new york do you consider yourself a designer yes and no that's the truth yes and no because i don't know how to sew or i didn't go to you know central st martin's or Pratt or Parsons or whatever, you know, but at the end of the day, like part of me, you know, wants to respectfully say that I'm not a designer, you know, but the, tr yeah, I am a, yeah, I'm a designer, but you know, like, like how you started my intro, like a jack of all trades, like I'm, I'm happy that I could do a little bit of everything. When did you know you were good at that? Like at what point in your journey, like you had left Supreme, I mean, left Stussy, you had gone to Nam de Guerre, you were taking on all these new roles, you were at Supreme, like, when did you, did you ever have moments where you're like, I could do that, or I'm really good at that, or I think differently about that, or we should do this different? So small, I had a, a t-shirt line that I started in 2002 called Absurd. And the minute I sold my first t-shirt, I was like, I could do this. And actually before that, I did two freelance t-shirt designs for Jeff Staple. And I'm not going to say how much I got paid, but it, it wasn't a lot. And I'm like, well, if I'm getting paid this, how much is he making off the design? And that really inspired me to start because I had t-shirt ideas. And at that time in New York City, everybody had a t-shirt brand. It was very common for everyone to have a t-shirt brand. It wasn't like such a difficult thing to do. So I was, you know, I was like, uh, you know, I was a cocky kid, you know, from Queens. I was like, I could do this, you know, but I just didn't have the business sense. When you're working in the store, you know, and, I'm, uh, and I know Mel can identify with this, if you see somebody buy something that you created, that feeling, that rush, it's a high and there's, there's nothing you compare. They're like, Oh, like, Oh, they're really into this thing. And that's what happened with, at Nome de Guerre. Like when I started buying for the store and I'm like, Oh, people really believe in what I like. Oh, snap. Like they don't know. They don't know that. I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they really, they're buying the stuff that I bought from APC <laughs> or, you know, Maharishi or whatever these brands that I used to deal with. 
And then when we started our own in-house collection, I remember this t-shirt, this, we did this t-shirt theme, like based around like 80s, like Brit pop bands, like the Smiths and the Cure and Joy Division. And I did that with the designer and those t-shirts flew out. And I'm like, oh, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. like I'm dope. Like I did that. <laughs> you know, like, I might've not did the work on the computer. I was like, but that's my concept, you know? And I picked those, I picked those images. Like that's me. Like that's my, that's, that's my touch. And same thing, you know, that started happening at Supreme, you know, where it's like, I, like I conceptualize that idea. You see it hit the racks or the shelves or whatever, and it flies out. You know, like, that's me. You know, like, I can't go around, like, waving the flag, like, I, you know, but deep down inside, it's like, it builds the ego, you know, like, I, I believe in myself. And that, that also took time, you know, because, um, you know, navigating these, these rooms where most of the time I was the only person of color, right? And you're up against, you know, like your peers and your counterparts went to these like big institutions that I rattled off before, like Central St. Martin's or RISD or whatever. And you, t- you can see that their opinions are taken more seriously than yours because of, or because of that kind of validation, right? That act like academia validation that they have. And you don't like, I went to Queensborough Community College, you know, and then I went to School of Visual Arts, but I never like was like, I went to Queensborough Community College. Yeah. <laughs> I was very... I was very embarrassed about that, you know, but today I'm not, you know, like I'm very proud that I went to QCC, you know, because it shows kids like, all right, like that's where I started and this is where I'm at now. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's okay. And I laugh about it, but it took me four years to graduate a two-year school, (laughs) you know, because I was just, I was just a mess. You know, I was really trying to figure out my life. Those four years, I was really confused, man. 18 to 18 to uh, 22 was really rough, really, really rough. And I guess that's why, you know, like back to your, the couch question you know why like i think about that 18 that 18 year old the 19 year old and I, and when i get a 19 year old in front of me like i have i'm it's easy to tap into that compassion for them I'm like I, I know exactly what you're feeling you know whereas like our parents right when you come from an immigrant household like they don't know you know they're like yo you're in america there's electricity and you got clothes you got food what are you cut what do you what is this depression no you know idea depression, you know what depression yeah. is like depression <laughs> is no food no socks, no shoes, you know, and you're like, yeah, but I feel depressed and I can't get out of bed. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's why therapy, like the concept of a therapist is so crazy to them. Like what you're going to pay somebody to go talk to them about what you're feeling. No, even worse (laughs) is what are you going to tell them about us? Right. Yes. That's where, that's where my mother went. You know, she was like, are you, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. So why are you crazy? And what are you telling them about what happens in the house? 100%. You know, what, what happens in the house stays in the house. Yeah. Well, because they're in their own crisis as first gen, trying to belong, trying to fit in, trying to elevate themselves with no support. So if they didn't get support, why should you get support? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to mention the, I'm sure your mom had a shoe or a belt or something that she. Oh yeah, that was. <laughs> she used to him. That's a whole other conversation, another show, like, <laughs> and how that dictated my dating life. <laughs> but also, you know, the reflection of like coming up in a foreign country, we're not factoring in the industrial age and how everything has sped up exponentially and then with the electronic age. And so everything your parents suggested, I know like my grandfather was first gen and and he came here by escaping on a boat at 17. So he had no education. He signed his name with an X. 
he started in New York City, he made a living, as he would say, collecting junk. But what he meant is he took furniture that people left in their alley, he stripped it, he refined it, he put brass, beautiful fixtures on, and he sold it because they were antiques that people hadn't recognized. But he had no training for it. And I think what's interesting is he was like, would say to us, you can do anything. You just have to find the thing you know how to do. And I think there's so much truth to that, but I also think it got more complicated. And figuring that out in this age on your own, coming from whatever educational background, that's why you have to ultimately, no matter what you've received, you still have to go inside because you still won't be getting any further than even your formal education. You can come from Pratt, but if you have depression, you're not going to connect with people in the industry and even know what success feels like to you. And so that's why we're in such a crisis. And that's why I also love what you were saying about um, how it felt really good when people recognized like the shirts you designed and released. But it's not just your ego that finally got nourished. It's also the real you that was like, whoa, I can do that. Well, if I can do that, what else can I do? You know, like your latest thing, Angelo, with the, was it the Bronx Fire, that T-shirt? And you elevated consciousness. You raised money uh, to assist your community, rebuild your community. Like you did all of that from that experience long ago. Because how else would you have the confidence to do something like this? Like, where did that idea come from? Well, one, you know, I pray for all those families that that uh, that lost and also survived that tragedy. Right when I left Supreme and I really went full on with Awake, I always wanted to have some kind of give back, right? So like in recovery, you know, we say, you know, we can only keep it by giving it away. And I, and I really instilled that in the work that I do, right? Not just in recovery, but, you know, in the actual, like the work work, right? You know, and really operating from that place of faith, you know, like if I, if I donate X amount of dollars, like I'm going to be fine. I'm totally going to be fine. It's going to be paid back in some shape or form, maybe not monetarily, but, you know, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, like it's going to, it's going to do me right. That first situation was with Standing Rock, you know, where I was so angry, you know, what was happening, you know, and just witnessing the injustices on social media and TV and, you know, honestly feeling helpless. Yeah, Cause the truth is like, I was like right in the thick of like starting, you know, I had a creative agency. I just started. I had a wake that I just thought I had my new office. I'm like, I'm not going to get on an airplane and like stand in a field and protest, you know? So I'm like, what's the next thing that I can do? I was like, oh, I can bring awareness to this and I could help generate money. Mm. So like the first drop that I did for awake, like we, we donated about like 20 to 30%. And I didn't have anything. That's the thing. You know, the trick was like, I really didn't have like a pot to piss in. That was really scary. You know, like I like, I like, I need this money. Like I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be donating this money, but I really have faith that it'll be fine. You know, and it has, like, here we are, you know, five years and change later. I've never gone a day without needing food or shelter or anything like that. You know, and, and the biggest win for me is truly leading by example. And that kind of like that give back, you know, uh, intention and consciousness is now the norm in streetwear. Mm. You know, and I'm not here to, uh, and I've said this before in other interviews, like I'm not here to like 
claim soul and ownership of, you know, bringing that consciousness to streetwear, but we're at the forefront of it. You know, we were the first to do it five years ago, you know, and really build off of that idea and do more, you know, be able to do more. You know, we're, you know, Mel was involved in this, uh, this program that we call social studies that I created with Shanifa Jarvis. And that's all about giving back. That's all about transparency and accessibility to, you know, POC talent and showing kids like that, you know, like if you see it, you can do it. Right. You know, and, and that's something that, you know, that was the whole point of social studies, like growing up as a as a child of immigrant parents, you know, and really wanting to be a photographer, wanting to be that photo editor, wanting to, you know, be a clothing designer, not really ever seeing myself in that position. Never, never. There was a few examples, you know, in the early 90s, but, you know, they, they, it didn't really exist when it was my, you know, when it was really my turn to kind of like want to want to be in these spaces. So, you know, currently with what the Bronx fires you know, I've, I've taken that leadership role over the years. And, and I think, right, that I've, I've gained the respect of my peers, that it's easy to just text someone and like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Do you want to come along for the ride? You know, it's a good cause. And everybody was like, yes, no one, like no one asked any weird questions. Like, where's, you know, not even where's the money going to no one actually won John Gray, because he's from the Bronx, which rightfully so he should be asking that. And I also asked him for help, you know, for guidance on that. But almost everybody was like, yeah, we got you, no problem. And originally that, you know, the idea came from my partner in the, in the, in the fundraising, his name is Ricardo from uh, no, no Company Agency. And he's the one who really pushed me, you know, cause I was, I was gonna do it anyway, but he was like, like, let's get on it. You know, what seemed at first, like I was just gonna like help him with a few things. Like it really became more of a heavier lift than I thought, which is usually what happens in streetwear. <laughs> And, and my whole, like, basically, like, all my employees start working for three days and just work on getting this T-shirt done. Well worth it. You know, like, we had no idea we were going to generate $87,000. You know, like, $87,000. And then we did the due diligence, and we ended up breaking it up amongst three organizations. And we got to, do, you know, FaceTime with those organizations and figure out how can we further help them. You know, it's because what I don't believe in is a one and done. You know, like, uh, you know, what I've learned, what I've learned through COVID is really kind of, identifying frontline organizations right which means that you know it's not a it's not a big national organization say like the aclu right or something statewide like here we have make the road new york but someone that like hyper local that's actually like working with the community one-on-one you can see where your money's going to you know there's transparency you know so for me that's you know that's all been an educate like an educational process Mm. for me and also teaching my peers like, hey, you know, like, it's cool that you donate to the NAACP and these like huge organizations, which, you know, they're going to get their money no matter what, you know, like, who who can we affect locally? You know, like, how, like, how can, you know, how can we help improve our community? Yeah, it's also so incredible, because we were talking about how all big movements have always started from the ground up, it's never from the top down. Yeah. So this idea of not waiting for you know, the people in power to sort of empower us because it seems like that's not going to be how Mm. it's going to happen. But also just thinking that you were able to donate $87,000, like you couldn't do that by yourself. But through this thing that you've created, like you're able to create a product that's covetable enough that enough people would buy it that you could do that. And I love how that's become your vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was shocked. I mean, I was, I was like overwhelmed, like emotionally overwhelmed that week, you know, because I was struggling with my own thing, you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's how I know, like, I'm being careful about my God, you know what I'm saying? Like all the things that I was worried about, 
it's like, well, here you go, man. Like, here's your purpose. This is what you're meant to do. You know, that thing that you think you're supposed to be doing or that thing that you think you're supposed to be receiving this week, it ain't about, that's not, that's not what I put you here for. That ain't it. Not right now. You know what I'm saying? That thing that you want, maybe you'll get it soon. Maybe not ever, but this is the work that I need you to do right now. Like Mel said, it's, yeah, I help organize it, but that that's on the community, you know, the community stuff though. You know, like the, you know, my partners and that, everyone that participated in that t-shirt really stepped up, you know, and, and didn't make it about them. You know, they understood the bigger picture and, you know, that, and that's done through love, right? You know, like, and, and you can't fake that. And I feel like that's what people, you know, it evoked emotion. Like people saw like, oh, these, oh, you guys are coming together to do this. Like, and we've seen that you've done it before, you know, so, and, and it's not looking opportunistic or you're trying to get like a, you know, a PR moment, like. All right, we know that this is this is an awake thing. You guys are all right, cool. We down. Yes, we want to help too. Cool. Yeah, so beautiful. And sometimes what you initiate long ago pays back years later. So even just the energy and the work you've done led you to that moment. And I feel that we don't understand that the power of attraction comes from that internal place where then when you pioneer something or blaze a trail in the path of service, people can smell the difference between that and an opportunist. And there isn't anyone who wouldn't want to participate if a door was open for them. Because a lot of people really want to make a difference, want to help, want to build communities or rebuild. They just don't know how. And there's, it's such a welcomed opportunity when there's a real place to put your money, to put your labor, to put your energy. So it really speaks well of that whole process. Just, you know, it's rare. I love how articulate you are about this because it's so rare to get to hear it laid out. We always usually hear about the conclusion. We don't hear about the footprints getting there. Yeah, Ange, we're thankful for you. I just want to share one thing that just sort of encapsulates all of this is I remember I was asking you for advice once under some kind of context and I don't remember all the things that you said. I wrote them down somewhere, but you were like rattling off all these ideas to me and I remember having my mind be a little blown and I'm like, wow, like how did you know to think that way? And we were talking about retail and you're like, well, I don't know about retail stores right now and this and that. And you were like, why are you open seven days a week? And I was like, what do you mean? Is there any other option than to be open seven days a week? Like in my own thought, cause I'm still thinking in like a, I'm, I'm still trying to break through like those rules or whatever. And you were like, yeah, why don't you just open four days a week and leave one or two days and do mentoring? And just have it be like a community center and have people come in and you can mentor them. And I literally remember my mind being blown at like never even thinking about that. But I love the way your mind works and how you've bridged all these things together. It's like it's your design. It just feels like all the things that you are, you've brought together in this really beautiful way. So I'm really thankful we have you in this industry and in this world. I'm I'm grateful for y'all, man. Thank you. I mean, thank you for also you you brought Julie. I always talk about just a little backstory. Mel Mel took like literally took care of me like four winters ago. I was in bad shape, bad shape. I went to LA to spend some time alone to get out of New York, and I didn't really I didn't know Mel like that. You know, we knew each other, but we weren't like super cool like that we are now, like the relationship that we have. 
you know, she took me to go see Dave Chappelle on New Year's Eve. And I remember we went to we went to a diner afterwards mm-hmm. and I just really <laughs> appreciate because like, I just needed that, you know, like that. I don't know. I don't I, like I just want you to know that I just like it, it meant it still means the world to me, you know, because it was like it was a certain kind of healing that I needed at that time. And then she introduced me to you. She was like, you know what I'm going to give to you for as a, like a belated Christmas present. I'm going to give you, you know, a session with Julie. I think it's going to help you. And I was like, you know, like when you receive that kind of love and compassion, for me, it's like, how do I not put that back out into the world? You know, how do I, you know, like, because that that was given to me unconditionally, right? It wasn't like, I'm going to give this to you, but I need you to give me some advice on how to make my business better. You know, there were there were no strings attached to that evening. And, you know, and I, and I cherish, I really cherish that moment that Mel and I were able to share. Same. Even though you clowned my car and everything the whole time. <laughs> I, didn't say I, was the, I didn't say I was the perfect companion for the evening. I just said that I really appreciate it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I truly believe that there's, you know, that there's a divine architect at play and there's no coincidence why we all met one another. And we're having this conversation today and not yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed all the things that happened to me in order for me to be here and present with the, with the both of y'all and, and had this kind of clarity and, and groundedness to be tapped in. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. It's always nice to expand the conversation, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you've built on. And I feel like you've allowed us that today. So thank you for that gift. Love you, Ange. Yeah, so good to see you. Thank you. Love you. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Bye. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.